0: First chapter of Ecclesiastes. Um, the voice we hear is Solomon's, uh, and this also is the sermon text this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all. Is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. And goes round to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be doing. And there is none, nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven It is an unhappy business that God has given in the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for it because it's your word. It's not always something we find comforting. Sometimes it's confusing. But Lord, in the end, we know it is comforting. In the end, we know it is life we know that it is able to give us life and to build us up. And we know that only you have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? Now we pray that you would mold us and shape us by your word. As we sing it, as we hear it read, and as we now hear it proclaimed, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are soft and moldable. And Lord, use this time to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the conqueror of all, the victor of all, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I would guess that a lot of you are familiar with the name Viktor Frankl. If you're not, Viktor Frankl was a Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, philosopher, author, and Holocaust survivor. Chances are, if you do know his name, you know his name through his classic book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is an autobiography, but it really focuses on about four years, four of his years surviving a Nazi concentration camp, one of those being Auschwitz. And in this book, it's a fascinating book, uh, he, he, he provides some profound and even at times graphic insight of his time in captivity under the Nazi regime. And as a psychiatrist, as a scientist, he also provides his observations of the human spirit as it's stripped of all dignity and of all identity. Now, through these observations, now if you keep reading, Frankl also uses this book to outline a form of uh, psychotherapy that he founded called logotherapy. Logotherapy is, is translated meaning therapy. It, it, it's, it's, it's about meaning. And it seeks to fill this, what, what Frankl called this existential vacuum that happens. What's an existential vacuum? Well, it's what he observed as a total loss of an ultimate meaning to one's existence that would make life worthwhile. See, he observed a lot of people who were struggling for survival in this Nazi death camp. And yet he also observed some that would eventually give up. And yet he would see some who would go through the same turmoil, the same suffering, himself included, and yet would hang on, would still have this will to live. And what he observed was when a person lost any sense of future goals, this is right from his book, he says, when a person lost any sense of future goals or meaning, everything in a way became pointless, life for such people became meaningless. See, they spent their survival, they spent their time surviving, grasping at straws, as the phrase goes. That, that, that phrase, grasping at straws, really is about someone who's drowning and grasping for anything that's floating on the water. Even if it's a piece of straw. Something, just grasping for anything. And when there was nothing there, giving up. So Frankl's logotherapy provided something for his patients, something for those people who were losing hope, who had no hope. He provided something to fill that void. He sought to provide meaning for them. Now, the thing is, with Frankl, if you know anything about him, he was coming from an existentialist point of view or a humanistic point of view, where, where kind of an earthly point of view. The existentialist defines his or own meaning from their own existence. And that is what Frankl was seeking to do. He would ask, when everything is stripped away, our loved ones, our health, profession, dignity, everything that identifies us, what do we have left? In the Nazi death camp, what did they have left? They had everything taken away from them including their hair. And they were identified now as a number. That was it. And he says, at that point, what makes us any different from an animal? And he says, well, what makes us different is we still have, and these are Frankel's words now, he says, we still have the freedom to choose our meaning. We still have freedom to choose that which makes life worthwhile. Frankl was on to something. I don't agree with, with, with his existentialist philosophy or his, his, his perspective or where he's starting from, but he's, he was on to something. Because he says man is always searching for meaning, always reaching out for meaning. He says that man has this hidden cry for meaning. That was the name of one of his other books. But the problem is this. Even when Frankl would help one of his patients get through their crisis, by providing some kind of meaning for them, they still had to face death eventually. They still had to come to a place of facing their end, which is death. And so do we. Not a very happy introduction to this sermon, but a very poignant one, because the book of Ecclesiastes is a very poignant book Today we're going to begin a short series on this book. Thank you, Bruce, for reading chapter 1. Since this book has 12 chapters, we're going to look at two chapters per week from now until, I think, Labor Day weekend is when uh, this series will end. We'll look at chapters 1 and 2 today, talk a little bit about the book itself and what the author is seeking to do. So let's get started. Verse 1 now, we see that it starts off with the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, sometimes you may see an article or a book on Ecclesiastes, and you'll see this word koheleth. You ever see that? Koheleth. And what that is, that's just the Hebrew word for the preacher. You see preacher in in our ESV Bibles. It says that is the Hebrew word for that is koheleth. So that's where we get that word. Now, where do we get the word Ecclesiastes? Well, that word comes from the Greek version of Ecclesiastes, which is called the Septuagint. uh, The Greek Old Testament, I'm sorry, is called the Septuagint. And the book of Ecclesiastes, that word for the preacher is Ecclesiastos. And that simply means a member of the assembly or can be translated preacher. And that's what it does. So that's where we get the name Ecclesiastes, in case you're wondering there. Now, we see the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this appears to be Solomon, but i, I got to tell you, I, as, as I look at, at commentaries, there's actually debate about that. So, that's something you could look up and read about, but just, just so you know, there, there, are, there are some who believe that this was somebody writing from the perspective of Solomon, and some who believe that it very well was Solomon. So, just a, a, a little something there, if you're interested in reading more about that. Um, the ones who say that he was, he was writing in place of Solomon, this was kind of a common form of writing. This wasn't somebody falsifying their identity. It was somebody writing as Solomon for a purpose. It's a, it was a form of writing that was popular in that area in that time. But the purpose of the author's writing this book, whether it's Solomon or somebody writing for Solomon or in his place, what I see this is to provide a reality check for God's people very kind of broadly, to provide a reality check for God's people. And he begins with the end of his search. Think about this, this search that the preacher was on this whole time. He, he talks about this whole search, and he starts with the end in mind when he starts this book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He uses the word vanity five times just in that verse. And what's interesting about that, that verse is that you'll see it again in chapter 12, but we think of those as like bookends. So if we have the, that verse, Vandy of Vandy on, on the beginning of the book and Vandy of Vandy at the end of the book, it's like bookends. Then we want to know what's inside the book now. These are bookends that, that, that are encapsulating the message of the preacher. And his message seems very pessimistic. NIV says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I like this version here because it says vanity of vanities. It's, it's a way of, of, of speaking of a superlative. We, we do this with Jesus. Jesus, king of kings, the Bible says, lord of lords. We do this when we're talking about somebody who is a, a teacher of all teachers. You know, we use that, and that's that's the, the form that the writer is using here. He's saying vanity of vanities. This is the superlative of vanities. Everything is meaningless. What a way to start. Now... Another interesting thing here is the word for vanity here really is not translated from the Hebrew as vanity. It's translated, the word is hevel, and, and, the, and, and it's translated as mist, or steam, or breath, or wind. That doesn't sound anything like vanity or meaninglessness to you, does it? Or to me, either. But yet, it's translated in as meaningless. This word hevel is used 38 times in this book, in these 12 chapters, 38 times, so how do we get vanity out of this? How do we get meaninglessness out of this? Well, if we go back to the idea that we were talking about with Frankl, if meaning, if meaning is what keeps us alive, it keeps us going, it gives us solid ground on which to stand. If we use the grasping analogy, think about grasping as something to hold on to keep you from falling. Think of that as your meaning, as your purpose, whatever that may be. Think about that. You're holding on, and that is something solid that you can hold on to. But what the preacher here is saying it's all vapor, it's all mist. Try grabbing onto that. Now do you see how it is meaningless? All of this is meaningless. We can't grab onto it. If we are indeed holding on to what gives us meaning. Be it our identity, our profession, our accomplishments, our intelligence, or our abilities. Kohelet, the preacher, says, it's not going to do. It's not going to do. So verse 2 serves as the framework for the entire book. But something I like being said about this about this passage uh, from Zach Eswine, who is one of my former pastor, or, uh, um, professors at Covenant Seminary. He's now a pastor at Riverside Church. He says this: "To say that everything is meaningless is to make a meaningful statement. To say that everything is meaningless is in itself a meaningful statement. Something that should perk our ears up. Something." That has some substance to it that's being said by the preacher here, that's being said by the Word of God. What is that? We think of that, therefore, something must have meaning. There must be some meaning out there somewhere. But this is also kind of a cry, it's kind of a lament. Everything is meaningless. But although he says that all is meaningless, all is not hopeless. And we'll see this. But first, we're going to spiral down a little bit as we start into verse one. Or or I'm sorry, as we start into chapter one here. He starts with a descent into vanity, talking about the meaningless cycle, this monotonous cycle of activities that just continue to show and demonstrate the meaningless of all of this world. He says in verse 3, What does man gain by his toil in which he toils under the sun? What kind of advantage does he have? What kind of an advantage do you have, do I have, in all of the work that we're doing here under the sun? Now, this is an important statement too because he says something very important, this phrase, under the sun. You see this, if you read the Ecclesiastes, and please try to, try to read through it uh, in the next few weeks, you'll see this phrase repeated over and over. In fact, that, under the sun, is repeated 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. What does that mean? He's talking about the world as we know it, the world that we see, kind of the horizontal view of the world. Perhaps, so to speak, Frankel's view of the world. The view from the humanistic side that everything we're doing is vanity. One commentator, Michael Eaton, says, if our view of life goes no further than under the sun, all of our endeavors will have an undertone of misery. This phrase, under the sun, is important and he uses it throughout the book. So Ecclesiastes is describing a view of life under the sun. Therefore, any any meaning, he's starting us off by saying, any meaning that we are seeking under the sun is nothing more than a manufactured and fragile meaning. It's a meaning that is mere vapor. Nothing to grab onto Verse 4. This is, this is written in, in a poetic form here, and, and, and you see this as, as you, you can feel the rhythm of this as, as we read through it, but, but the, the author is getting to the point of the meaninglessness here. He says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around the, and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Everything is just getting weary from the repetitive nature. A man cannot utter it. There's too many words. No new words. Nothing worth saying. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear is filled or satisfied with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. There's no, there is, is there a thing that said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. This is 22,000 plus years ago. They're talking about the ancient times, yeah, they were saying even then, there's nothing new. And we could say it today as well. There's nothing new. Same old record, same old song. No meaning. Everything is vapor. Nothing is worth holding on to. Now, I'll mention Frankel one more time, because he speaks of there being meaning in death even. And he says, even through death, now he would work with his patients, and even through death, life does not lose its meaning, he says. Now, I agree with that, but I don't agree with it from his point of view. For the meaning does not consist in preserving anything for the future, but the meaning is about storing it in the past, where it will be stored forever. Is that true? The preacher seems to disagree with that. Because the next verse, verse 11, says, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who came after. In other words, yes, we remember some things. Yes, we remember some famous people, some famous songs. We remember some famous events. But eventually they all get swallowed up into the belly of time. They all get swallowed up and consumed by history to a point to where they're so far back behind, we will no longer remember them. They will be swallowed up and gone forever. So what do we do when we come face to face with our end? What do we do when we come face to face with the meaninglessness of life and we feel ourselves... Do you ever feel yourself sinking? Do you ever feel yourself losing any kind of meaning or purpose? Going through a devastating time, facing an illness or death? You feel, where is the meaning? Where is the purpose? I'm sinking. What do we do when we feel ourselves sinking? Well, two things that are pointed out here by the preacher is he seeks to learn more and he seeks to earn more. Now, I'm encapsulating earn more and a few other things, but it works. I'll show you. But he seeks to learn more and he seeks to earn more. Verse 12, I, the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. He says this. This is kind of interesting. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Interesting, he acknowledges that God gives us this work, that God gives man this work of being busy with the unhappy business of the world. God has given us the job of living in this unknowable, confusing world with all of its perversities and its disorders. He says in verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. One commentator says it's a terrible thing to try to grasp all that's happening in the world by wisdom and by our knowledge. Because our wisdom and our knowledge is limited. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. All of our wisdom and all of our knowledge cannot make straight what God has created to be crooked, is what the writer is saying. Even our wisdom, even the most intelligent, cannot straighten out all of the perversity and disorder. Why do tornadoes happen? Why do tsunamis happen? climate change, war, COVID-19, pandemics, car accidents. Why did these things happen? We have some of the most brilliant people in the world, and yet they're still happening, trying to figure out what is going on. Yes, we make headway. Yes, we make a little bit of progress in making things safer and having better warning systems and vaccines. But do we ever really conquer these things by our wisdom? It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. He says, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem. And yet he says that this is still striving after the wind, trying to hold on to vapor. For in much wisdom is much vexation. and He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Do you ever think, if you just learn more, if you just know more, you'll be happier? If you know these solutions, if you know the ways, then you learn how much you don't know. The more you know, the more you learn, the more you know what you don't know. And you're seeking, and we can continue to seek after. Matthew Henry says, the more we know, the more we see there is to be known. And consequently, we we perceive with greater clearness that our work is without end. And the more we see of our former mistakes and blunders, it occasions much grief. So let's put the learning aside. Maybe we can't do it. Maybe the learning is not our source of meaning, but maybe our earning can be a source of our meaning. We earn more, we seek to earn more and gain more, as if money, power, and pleasure provide our meaning. He said, I said, my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this all is vanity. It's all meaningless. He searched with his heart how to cheer his body with drinking and eating, with servants, with building gardens, with building buildings. He gained more wealth and gained more possessions and had more pleasure. He got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. The delight of the sons of men. I became great. He became famous. He became great among his people. And whatever his eyes desired, he didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for my toil. It's kind of like the guy that Jesus talks about in Luke 12. The one who built up all of his wealth and built up more barns and more more grain and had everything. And he said to himself, soul, you have many, many good things. You have so much laid up for yourself. Now eat, drink, and be merry. It was at that night that God told him that your very soul is demanded of you. Everything he gained was meaningless, was vanity, was grasping at the wind. He says this, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. This is chapter 2, verse 14, I'm sorry. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. It doesn't matter how wealthy I am. It doesn't matter how smart I am. Then I said to my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Why have I gained all this knowledge? Why have I worked so hard? I said to my heart that this also is vanity. It's also meaningless. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. And then he says this at the end of verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. So now what? So now what does our preacher do? Now what do we do when we get to this place where we see that our our learning, our increasing in knowledge is getting us nowhere. Where we still have that void, we still have that emptiness. When we see that all of our possessions, all of our position, all of our money, everything that we have, our fame doesn't get us what we want because we realize that that too becomes monotonous, like the sun going up and coming down, coming up and going down. Continually monotonous to where it becomes. Vanity in and of itself. Well, chapter 2, verse 17, this is what he says. I'm sure perhaps you and I have been there. So I hated my life because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and all is striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I... Why, why did he hate it? Because I must leave it to men who will come after me. And who knows who they're going to be? Who knows what kind of person I'm going to leave all of my labor to? You see, because I don't take it with me, so everything I've done, everything I've accomplished, it's going to go to somebody else. And I don't know how he's going to do it, how he's going to use it, or she. So I turned about, verse 20, chapter two, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity. And now he adds, "And great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. Listen to this wealthy, intelligent man. All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What's the use Reading through this, what is the use? You might think, what a depressing book. It's okay, we just got five more weeks of it, so. What a depressing person, this Koheleth, this preacher. But what good is there in telling us how meaningless everything is? might even think, why is this book even in the Bible? That question's been asked. What's it even doing in there? Where's the good in all of this vanity? Where's the good in all of this meaningless under the sun? But there is a link to some hope in this book. Many of you who've been through it already know this, but, but, but hang on. Because this book sounds a lot like the New Testament sometimes. Believe it or not. Remember when he says back in one thirteen, it's an unhappy business that God has given us. That God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's an unhappy business, this, this meaninglessness he's talking about. Dealing with this futility, this, this vanity. It's an unhappy business that God gave us, this task of dwelling in this meaningless mist of a world. Well, it actually sounds like Paul, the apostle, had this verse in mind in Romans 8 when he says this in verse 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, that word futility could be meaninglessness or vanity. In fact, that Greek word for futility, there's the same Greek word that's used in the Greek version of Ecclesiastes. The same word. Subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The one who subjected us to this futility. Why did he do it? The end of verse 20. He did it in hope. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage from its bondage to these feudal ways, from this bondage to this vanity and this meaninglessness, to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, health was trying to learn his way out. He was trying to earn his way out of this meaningless life, but all of his efforts and all of our efforts were simply useless because in and of ourselves, we don't have it. There is no meaning in and of ourselves just because I'm a human being. His works were useless to bring any meaning and peace. Paul tells us where we get our meaning. But first, Paul has to bring us to a place of understanding our meaninglessness without Christ. Romans is very much like Ecclesiastes. may just not be as much negativity, but listen to this. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, every one of us. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they, we, have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As Ecclesiastes is dealing with our need for meaning, Paul is addressing our need for righteousness. Our need for righteousness, our need to stand before a holy God. And how do we try to do that? We try to earn our way to that, don't we? Sometimes we try to learn our way to that, to get before a holy God and be worthy to him. But the gospel says, you know, if you just take the gospel and put in the words of Ecclesiastes, you could say this, unrighteousness of unrighteousness. All is unrighteousness. All of our striving under the sun is unrighteous. It's useless. It's meaningless. That is the preacher, Paul the Apostle, saying that all is unrighteous. And so what's Paul do? In the book of Romans, what's he do? He says, he comes to this place of despair and says, Wretched man that I am! All of my struggles with this meaningless, all of my struggles to try to be something before God, but I'm not. I don't have that in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to do it? Who's going to deliver me from this meaninglessness? And he continues, praise God. Praise God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are delivered through our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive a righteousness that we could never have. We receive a meaning that we have never had. We receive purpose that we could never have in and of ourselves because in and of ourselves we are hopeless. But in Christ we have hope. We have meaning. We have a righteousness that cannot be obtained by anything we do, by anything. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, same word again, futile, meaningless ways inherited by your forefathers, how not with perishable things like silver or gold, not by the things that you accumulated, not by the things that you learned, and not by the things that you tried to do, but by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. That's why Christ told us to stop seeking for anything but to seek him first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Let me read this. I know I went a little over, but let me read this out of Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither toil, they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span through any of your learning, through any of your earning, through anything that you do? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he will, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? O oh, me of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we eat, what, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. The ones without God seek all these things under the sun, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All vanity, all meaninglessness ends in Christ. May we seek him first, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have overcome the world. Thank you that you have given us meaning, that you have given us purpose. And Lord, I pray for anyone who does not know you, Father, that they would hear the call of the gospel, that all of life is meaningless under the sun, but in Christ all is victorious because of your victory. May we cling to you through the blood of Christ and may we hang on for dear life to you, Jesus, our only source, our only hope, our only life. That's in his name we pray. Amen.